0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. From the Gospel of Mark. Whatever villages or towns or countryside he entered, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and begged him that they might touch only the tassel on his cloak, and as many as touched it were healed. Lord, we ask you to be with us here tonight as we consider our human nature and all that you have given us as part of your creation. Help us to recognize the wonderful gifts that we have been given and the healing that you offer us along the way. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is yes, now, and ever shall be, for all end. Amen. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Quick recap as to sort of where we have been so far. So remember, we're talking about this human person, over here, who is trying to get somewhere that we're calling happiness or flourishing or whatever you want to be, but some sort of end over here. And there's some sort of way to to kind of get there. And we remember that we talked about the fact that anything that we actually do as human persons, we actually do because we think it's going to cause our flourishing. That is, it's going to somehow make us happy. Perhaps not directly, right? We might choose to do something difficult because It will result in something that will make us happy, we think, but we always have this human person acting for an end which he thinks is going to make him happy. And so last week, we took a look a little more closely at the human person, and we said that, again, he's kind of after this happiness, and one definition of human person, sort of a classical definition, is a substantial union of body and soul. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that these two things are so close that even as soon as we say body and soul, it sounds like we're talking about two things, but it's one person. They are that close to each other. So I tried to, you know, I showed you this last week. We tend to kind of think of this sort of ghost in the machine or this, you know, me and my shadow as being the person. But what we really have to do is put them together because they are together. They're not separate from each other. And so we don't want to be dualists who think about these things as two different things, right? Right. Uh, It's it's not just my body. It is it my soul is here And so we talked about that a little bit and we also said that for human persons We actually or any person we talk about this as being the individual substance of a rational nature So that brings us to nature human nature and we're going to talk about this idea of what it means to talk about a rational soul again, we tend to have this idea of soul in our minds as a sort of ghost in the machine somehow but really, soul, which comes from the word anima, right, is, is really to be thought of as the animating principle, the thing which gives something life, the thing which makes a thing to be alive. And so, again, if we follow the thinking of Aristotle and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, then we can think about the fact that there are actually three different kinds of souls depending on sort of three large classifications of living organisms. And the idea is that each of these souls, each of these types of souls that go with living organisms, have certain properties or certain powers that go along with them. And so we can think about them differently. Now, this is perhaps the hardest one for us to think about. And this is where we got to really think about soul as being an animating principle, the thing which makes it to be alive. Now, most of you don't think about a plant as having a soul. But if we're following this type of, of language, this philosophical language... A plant is alive, right? We say it has life within us. So if you took biology class back in seventh grade, as I did, you learned all of the life functions. And if something has all of these life functions, it is alive. And if something is alive, it has all of these life functions. And so plants do have things that can show us that they are alive. And so there is something which makes the plant to be alive. It's amazing to me, because I have come very close to killing many plants, and they turn into almost nothing. But it seems like if there's just enough of this life left in it, somehow they come back. I mean, I've had violets come back. Right now, I'm nursing a poinsettia, or somebody else is actually nursing the poinsettia back to life. (laughs) That was a complicated story. But, but But it's amazing. There can be very little there, right? And even the idea that you can clip off a leaf from a plant and stick it in water and maybe get some roots to grow, right? There's something there that makes it to be alive. Now, I would suggest to you that in the very mechanistic way that the modern world likes to think about living things... Perhaps that's the best way to think about it in terms of a plant, right? It's that there's an initial an organism that's a one-celled organism that has within it DNA and it has proteins and it has the ability to do transcription in order to create new proteins, to create new cells and divide by mitosis and, and all of that the cell can do on its own. It doesn't require anything else to do it. So if we think about it in this very mechanistic way, I think we can maybe accept the fact that there is something that makes the plant to be alive. And then there are some people that make plants to not be alive. <laughs> but uh, plants, are they tend to sometimes withstand some of us. All right. Now, what are some of these things? And, and as I said in the, in the previous picture, is this, we talk about this as being a vegetative soul. Vegetative comes from the idea of it being a plant. But there are certain things that it can do. So a plant has nutrition, right? It actually has the ability to make its own food, for the most part, uh, by photosynthesis. It excretes things. It grows. It actually has some movement, right? Those petals can, can open and close, and the plants can lean toward the, toward the light. So it has all of those things. And so all of those, those things, growth and nutrition and uh, movement, excretion, respiration, all of those things are some of those life functions that we talk about. And plants have those, but then organisms that are higher than plants also have those, but then also have other features that plants don't have. So, for example, there are things which are animals. And animals are said to have what's called a sensitive soul. This means that they have everything that the plant has, the vegetative soul or the vegetative powers, but then it has other things added on top of it. And again, we have to think about it with respect to the animal in a very mechanistic way. I mean, if you start out with the zygote of an animal, it can go on and divide. And as long as it's provided with the right nutrients to be able to do all those things, it can grow into a full organism. That animal has other things in addition to things like nutrition and growth and excretion and movement and respiration, all of those, right? So what else can this animal do that a plant can't do? Well one thing that it can do is it can sense its sense its environment around it um, in a way that leads to other things. So it has seeing, right, or hearing. Some animals can perceive infrared waves. Now we can't do that, but some snakes are really good at that. That's why you don't want to be out walking somewhere where there might be a snake at night, right? Because they might pick that they might pick you up simply as a nice warm body um, that they are interested in. But in addition to that They have other things, and it's perhaps easier to see this in organisms that were a little bit more perhaps domesticated and we can deal with, but part of these, the sensitive soul includes things like our memory, right? So animals do have memory. They remember something from the past, and they can, you know, do whatever they do instinctually related to that. Animals are believed to have imagination. Um, Father Petrie a few weeks ago talked about the fact that, you know, when your dog's asleep, sometimes it seems like the dog is actually dreaming, right? There's, There's weird stuff going on. Caroline's grinning. She's got a few dogs. But there seems to be some level of that. And then in addition to that, we have something which we call our sense appetites, and these are the emotions. Animals do have emotions. And again, probably easiest to see if you think about some of these domesticated animals that we're the closest to, and we have some kind of a, if you want to call it a relationship to, I have to say, I was passing through my dad's room the other day, and there was this show on, and it was talking about the fact that the word pet is is a controversial term these days, because it's demeaning to the animal to call it a pet. You should call it an animal companion. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, I, we, we do recognize that the animal soul is different from a plant soul, but it's also not a human soul. So it has all of these things, right? So, so many of you have seen a dog which is happy. A dog can express being pleased with, with where it may be or what's going on around it, right? And there are dogs that, I mean, a dog can be sad. And what, what's going on with this is that there's some perception of something around, often by sight or it could be by hearing, and then there's a response inside. This is the way Thomas Aquinas talks about our emotions, that we perceive something outside of us, we take it inside of us, and then there's a response in us. And he says there's always also a physical response, and that's what we see with animals, right? The dog sees you coming home and wags its tail. The dog is not happy because you just yelled at it, and it goes into the corner and, and puts its head down, right? I mean, they do do that. And, you know, then there's the dog who's angry, right? dog can be angry as well. So, so these things are, are responses on the part of the animal that can pick up things around it. Now, plants don't do that. I mean, I suppose you can say the plant is happy because it's blooming, but it's not happy in the way that a dog is happy. Or a cat might be happy. But, but it does have these emotions. Now, humans, on the other hand, have now what we call a, a rational soul. And the animating principle of a human being is not simply the materialness of it. But in fact, it is something spiritual. And that is that we have evidence in understanding what humans do and how they think that we transcend the merely material. Um, so you have all of the previous things. You have the vegetative powers that plants have and animals have, and then you have the sensitive powers which animals have. But then in addition to that, there is for the human person this rational soul, um, and that includes what we call our intellect and our will. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought that the best way to describe this might be to talk about how we learn things. So Thomas tells us, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that we learn things through our senses. That all of our knowledge comes to us through our senses somehow. So we see something and we learn it. Or we hear, about, hear something or hear about something and we can learn it that way. You can learn by touching and you can learn by all of your senses, basically. And then we take that knowledge and we can do something with it, with our intellect and our will. But we can do it in a way that other things can't. So just on a general level, you know, we can we can reflect on things in a way that we don't have evidence that animals do, right? I mean, this woman looking out over this beautiful landscape in a sunrise or a sunset, something is there is happening, right? You can sit there and simply reflect on it. You also have the ref- ability to reflect on yourself, right? Not only can you think but you can think about thinking. Okay, there's really no way to explain that with synapses and neuroscience. It just you, you can't really get there. You know, how you can understand something like you know, love. Okay, you can understand love in a, you know, the the animal has the ability to 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 like or to love in a sense, right? But then just the concept of what love means is something bigger than just individual things. I think it's even more so if you think about, perhaps, let's say, teaching Louis the dog a trick versus teaching, you know, a young boy how to read, perhaps. They don't happen in the same way. You know, Louis the dog, you can train Louis how to raise his paw. You show Louis, perhaps, how to raise the paw, and then, and then you give Louis something good that he, Louis likes. And then Louis associates. You know, when you say, give me your paw, Louis, he knows the dog bone is coming, right, or the dog biscuit is coming. And so he will do it because, right, he wants his happiness, which is the dog biscuit, right? So you can train Louis. Now, you say to Louis, oh, good boy, Louis. But I would suggest to you that it's not Louis who's the good boy, It's the trainer who's the good boy. The trainer knows how to get the dog to do what he wants the dog to do. Because the dog on its own is not going to come up to you and say, look what I can do. It just doesn't work that way. With a human being, this is different. When we teach a little child, let's say, how to read or how to write, and they go off and suddenly there they are reading a book and then they come and show you what they've read in the book. Or they go off and write something and they come and show you what they've written. I mean, to say, wow, good boy, is not because ultimately what the teacher did, it is because the child actually went and made some choices, right? To go do more with it. All of you have the ability to learn things that nobody else has to tell you to go and learn. Nobody has to give you a, a dog biscuit to go do it. Giving the child a prize for, you know, that they've read the you know greatest number of books in the accelerated reader program at school is because the child really has made some good choices in terms of forwarding their own happiness, their own flourishing. On the converse, I would have to say that if you think about the human person as being nothing but material, if you're a person who does not believe there's a spiritual out there at all, there's nothing such, no such thing as a spiritual world, there's no such thing as a soul that's spiritual in a human person, there's no God, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then you have a child, and the child is doing really well in school, you know, getting good grades. But not only that, the child's a really nice kid, like he's good to other people. And, you know, maybe it becomes really musical on top of that. And, and you're, like, proud of that child for doing those things? Well, what are you proud of? I mean, are they just synapses doing those things? Is it that somebody else has trained them like the dog has trained them? Well, then it's you should be congratulating the teacher, not the child. We realize that there is something that the child himself is doing in terms of taking in knowledge but then making choices of what to do with it. And it's those two pieces, that intellect and will, that we talk about in the rational nature of human beings. I think I gave you this idea, perhaps it was the first class, and that was that one of the differences that we can see here is that a human being can actually choose things that seem to be contrary to our own good. You can choose to forgive somebody who hurts you. You can go back to somebody who hurts you over and over again and still try to do good for that person. Whereas if you treat Louis badly, Louis will go try to find some other place to be. Louis doesn't have the ability to make the choice to say, well, I forgive (coughs) you, and I think that the next time you're not going to do that same thing to me. So there's there's a big difference there. What is it that actually perhaps leads to this intelligence that we talk about? Father Petrie, a few weeks ago, talked about the fact that probably it's a good memory. Some of us have better memories than others. And some of us have memories that probably work in different ways. Hearing things versus seeing things, we might learn things better and sort of remember them differently. Probably having a better imagination helps us to be a little bit more intelligent because you can put things together in a different way. But a lot of it has to do with the choices that we make. And so we also know that in education, a lot of what we try to do is to try to figure out how do you motivate somebody? Not how do you train them to do something over and over and over again and just eventually get the right thing, like raising your paw, but how do you get them to realize that picking out this new knowledge and putting it together in new ways actually creates joy. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do that, you know, and when a child finally really learns how to read, sometimes children just need to be given special tools to try to figure out how to make it happen, and then when they do, it's really an amazing thing to see. I used this quote last week, and I just want to come back to it, right? The human person is an intelligent and conscious being capable of reflecting on himself and therefore of being aware of himself and his actions. However, it is not intellect, consciousness, and freedom that define the person. Rather, it's the person who is the basis of the acts of intellect, consciousness, and freedom. Right? These are part of our nature. But we don't define who's a person and who's not a person based on whether they can do these things. These acts can be absent, for even without them, man does not cease to be a person. All right, so to bring together a few words that we've talked about so far, so we have nature and person. Nature is the what of the thing. Person is the who. I mean, persons have to be who's. And then I, I tossed out these words last week or a couple of weeks ago about essence and existence. Essence is what the thing is, right? Essay to be. And existence is that it is. So it's what it is and that it is. So just some great little philosophical words, you know. I was going to say if you're paying tuition for the class. You're not paying tuition for the class, but anyway, there you go. Some fun (laughs) words to to throw around, some $10 words. But the idea is that this human nature is shared by all human persons. It may manifest itself in different ways, but it's shared by all human persons. And a fun little quote here. What are we? Well, we could be hairless bipeds if you like. Um, He loves those hairless bipeds he created. Now, I know at least one of you knows where this comes from. Do you know where this comes from? 20th century, not Fulton Sheen. Yes, C.S. Lewis. Thank mm-hmm. you, sister. Yes, this is C.S. Lewis. This is actually screw tape in the screw tape letters. So remember, screw tape is the devil, mm-hmm. right? And he's teaching another devil how to kind of get people to do the wrong things. And he's just befuddled because screw tape, the devil, says, kind of with his disbelief. He, meaning, well, he says the enemy, but that means God, right? He, God loves those hairless bipeds he created. So here we are, um, hairless, more or less, bipeds um, that he created. and that is a bit of our human nature perhaps. So if we think about this a little bit differently in terms of how we how we learn or whether we're different from other animals, or how we actually move along in doing something, we can think of different words. Animals work based on instinct. They know that something is going to be good either for their own life or perhaps the gene pool in a sense. Whereas human beings don't just operate on instinct. We make decisions. We use different terms. Can you train a dog or, or a horse to beat its hoof a certain number of times? You know, you say five, and it does five. Well, you could. But does the horse have the concept of what numbers or what, what numbers are? No, we have mathematics, good grief. Calculus, great stuff that's way beyond than simply a sort of a concrete thing. Why do we care about understanding the nature of a thing? It's partly because the premise here is that if we understand the nature of the thing, then we can understand what ultimately is going to make that thing happy or that thing flourish. Because it could only be happy or flourish according to its own nature. If you take a car and decide you want the car to drive across a lake and you drive it off the end of a dock, it just doesn't matter that you want it to do that. It's not made for that. And so to attempt to think that your happiness is going to be in something apart from what the nature of the thing is just isn't going to work. right? You can't push a horse off of a roof and say, fly, just because you want it to fly. The horse, in a sense, is happier flourishing when you see it running like a, you know, thoroughbred that's just, especially out just on its own. That's wonderful. So we need to understand our nature. Now, there are a couple of things that I think are related to this, other than sort of just the general human nature, that I want to bring up. And one is male and female, he created them. Male and female is really part of our nature. Right, we certainly have it in scripture. And it's part of actually a bigger piece. So for one thing is there we are distinct. This is actually Anne and Joachim at the Golden Gate of Jerusalem. So Anne and Joachim were the parents of Mary, so grandparents of Jesus, if you like. But the concept what we see through scripture is that male and female are complementary. They add something to the other that each doesn't have on its own. We're not supposed to be the same, and we're not. Again, Father Petrie a few weeks ago even talked about the fact that neuro-wise, we tend to think about things in a different way. Women tend to get things tied up very much with our emotions, which is not a bad thing. But it doesn't work so so much, um, uh, perhaps, with the male brain. And there are differences that we can see there. But as I said, this is part of something bigger. And that is that this is part of the fact that part of the nature of being a human person is that we have a social nature. This is built into us as well. And again, we can see that right there at the beginning of Genesis. I mean, What does God say about man before he creates woman? It's not good for him to be alone. And even though I've made all of these animals out there, they're not one of him. And so there needs to be somebody else. And he even uses the, there's even the kind of the concept of helpmate, that the two are going to work together in this wonderful plan that God has made. And so our social nature is part of who we are as well. Um, And as we go along in the rest of the sessions, we will think about that just a little bit. Now I'm going to go back here to just talk about that beginning one more time because it, this came up with a question um, last week. The question came up about uh, original sin. That if God creates the soul immediately, that is that God himself creates the soul. The soul doesn't come from parents. The parents provide the, the body, the material, right? Although we have to think about these things as joined as one. Then the idea that he was trying to express was You know, how does original sin get there if God can only create goodness in a soul? We tend to think about original sin as being something that's kind of bad thrown into this person. Well, it's not something bad thrown in because it's not a something. Okay, evil is not a something. It's a lack of. If you are sick, it's that you lack health. Right? What you're made for is health, and sick is lack, a lack of that health. So original sin is simply a lack of the original gifts that God gave to Adam and Eve. So what gifts did God give to Adam and Eve? We actually talk about three levels of gifts that he gave to Adam and Eve. First of all, he gave them human nature. So their body and soul and everything that goes along with those things. Well, okay. We have all of that. But then, God added two other pieces on top of that. One of the things that he added, um, that we we teach, is that he added to that gifts that are called preternatural. P-R-E-T-E-R. And then natural. Preternatural gifts. And preternatural gifts are those gifts that take human nature and raise it to a little better status. So for example, one of the things that we were given or that Adam and Eve were given in those preternatural gifts was that they wouldn't get sick. That's not abnormal to human beings in a sense. You know, we're in a time that we get sick. All right. So we we see that. But you know, your body lasts whatever, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years? I mean, why couldn't it keep going? Well, what we understand from the, you know, what we get out of Scripture in Genesis is that, well, in fact, that was one of the preternatural gifts that we're, was given—that there wouldn't be sickness, and in fact, that there wouldn't be death. There wouldn't be this separation of both body and soul. And so, in fact, when Aristotle posits that, you know, there's something wrong. Why does the soul separate from the body? He was right. It is a mysterious question. And in fact, at the beginning, we were created not to have that happen to us. But instead, you know, they messed up, and so the preternatural gifts, those preternatural gifts were taken away. And in addition to that, there was a wonderful correspondence of all of these different powers, You didn't have emotions fighting your intellect. You didn't have your emotions saying, I want to eat 200 chocolate chip cookies and I'm just going to go ahead and do that, where the intellect is saying, that's not really a good idea, (laughs) and you've got this little fight going on. Well, no. Those things were coordinated and worked together beautifully. The intellect was able to learn things easily. You know, Adam and Eve could look around and, and listen to things and learn things really easily, whereas learning stuff is a little hard for us. It's not so easy. But those preternatural gifts were not opposed to human nature. They raised human nature to a higher level, but still within what human nature could be. And then the third gift that the Lord gave to, God gave to Adam and Eve, was then a supernatural gift. And the supernatural gift was sanctifying grace. The fact that God actually shared his own life with them so that they could truly be sons and daughters of the Most High God. Adopted, right? not divine in themselves, but have a share in this divine life. Being born in original sin simply means that we're not born with sanctifying grace, and we're not born with uh, these preternatural gifts. We get sick and die. Now, what did Jesus provide back to us? the opportunity for sanctifying grace right so why do we take little kids as fast as possible to go get baptized because they're given this gift of sanctifying grace they are given the gift of being adopted as sons and daughters of the most high god you know if somebody says to you what's your claim to fame i said that to somebody a few weeks ago what's your claim to fame you know how about I'm the son or daughter of the Most High God. That's a pretty good claim to fame. And there's a beautiful statement, I don't think I used this one yet, but that somebody says, you know, it's true that you can go to the chapel and you can adore the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, but if you are in a state of sanctifying grace and you never in the course of the day bother to actually adore the Lord living in your own soul, no one can make up for your negligence. Other people will go to the chapel and adore the Lord, but we are called to remember that in the state of sanctifying grace, God is in us, and you know God might be right there in soul, sitting next to us too. And that might be make a big difference in terms of how we treat each other. So, but we'll save that for next week. Oh, you need homework. All right, ante up, raise the conversation do something good. CCC 1881. Each community is defined by its purpose and consequently obeys specific rules. But the human person is and ought to be the principal, the subject, and the end of all social institutions. You might take a look at that one and think about it. And then Prayer. I'm going to leave you with that one. Last week I said something about prayer, too. How, does, how do we think about prayer if we think about the human person, human nature, the way we've been talking about it? Um, it might, might be a little bit different. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Lord, help us to realize all the wonderful gifts that you have given us in our own creation, um, in our nature, and in what you have given us in supernature. And help us especially to use this knowledge to grow in our relationship with you, and with one another. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was, World without end. the name the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.